Well, hello and welcome to this latest Conversations episode on the Didache podcast. In these episodes, I talk with church leaders, planters and members from around the country with the aim of enlarging our vision of Jesus and of his church. And today I'm here with Jez Poyner, Elder and Associate Pastor of Grace Church Manchester. Jez, welcome to the podcast, mate. Good to be with you, Sam. Fantastic. Listen, Jez, tell us a bit about yourself to, to start with. Yep. So uh, I'm Jez. I'm married to Hannah. Uh, we live in Rush Home here in Manchester. Um, I've been on staff at Grace Church since 2018. Um, I'm, although I've been a member there since about 2013, I think. So I'm part of the furniture there, I guess. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm a associate pastor, so I'm on staff at the church. Um, I work with students. That's a big part of my role. Um, but I do various other bits and bobs as well um, help to lead stuff with the elders, do pastoral care, um, lead services. I, I preach here and there as well and do various other bits and bobs, which is a, a joy and a privilege. It's, it's such a, an amazing thing to be able to serve the church that I've been a part of for so long um, in this capacity. Jez, yeah, you're a neighbour of mine here in Manchester, uh, Rush Home. That's right. Uh, your church, we're, we're neighbours in churches as well. Uh, we've we've enjoyed walks around Platfields Park, haven't we? Chatting about Jesus, scriptures, theology, and in particular the Puritans. And we're going to be getting into them shortly, which I'm super excited about. Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> it's going to be good. But Jez, look, the question I'd love to start each of these conversations with is this. What is church? Mm. Well, the church collectively are the brothers and sisters of Christ. Where would you go to in the scriptures to back that up? Yeah, so a couple of places. I guess first I'd probably go to Romans chapter 8. Um, and this was driven home to me. A couple of years ago, we had a student Bible study and we were going through Romans and we were looking at Romans 8, which is just a, a really rich passage and, and very familiar, um, I'm sure, to, to all those listening. And often when you think about Romans 8 one of the key verses is Romans 8 28 that that glorious promise um, that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and um, we were looking at the larger section of, of Romans 8 with, with with the students I remember and I prepped this study beforehand um, but there was something particularly in the in the moment of the study with, with the students that jumped out to all of us in a fresh way, even to those of us who'd kind of prepared it in advance, um, which was what comes after that verse about God working all things together for good. So it says in verse 28, God, um, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And there was something about that that just jumped out to us because we saw that the reason why God is working all things for good for his people is that he can, is so that he, through them, he can, he can conform people to the image of Jesus. He's making Christians more like Jesus. Why, why is he saving people? Why is he conforming them to the image of Jesus? In order that, verse 29, he, that's Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Mm. And, the, and there's just something that just captured our, our hearts and minds about this glorious privilege we have of being part of Jesus's family. And, and one of the reasons why God is saving a people is because the father wants to give his son a bigger family. Mm. He, he wants to give him siblings. He wants to give him brothers and sisters um, to enjoy life with him in the family. And there was something about that that just just caught our imagination, really, in a fresh way in that moment in the study. Um, so that's that's a kind of key verse, I think. Um, and, it, and that ties in with um, Hebrews, um, Hebrews chapter two. So in Hebrews chapter two, um, it talks about Jesus. And, and in verse 11, it says about um, Jesus, he is not ashamed to call them, that is, Christians, brothers, and that adds a, another kind of light on it. It's something that struck me. And, and that's been a really precious verse to me, actually, in the past, Sam, because I've, I've been very conscious of my own, um, when I've been conscious of my own sin and felt ashamed for things that I've done as a Christian that weren't, weren't in line with what God wanted, the, the ways in which I broke his law and, and, and sinned in various ways. There's just a comfort to know that 
Jesus is not ashamed of me as his brother. You think about families and, and you think about sibling relationships and often where you've got the older brother and younger sibling relationships, you know, the older brother can be a bit embarrassed by their, by their younger brothers and sisters. And, you know, they're, they're like, oh, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> particularly if they're teenagers, they don't want to be associated with, with maybe their younger siblings because they're trying to look cool or whatever. But even more ser- seriously, you know, in, in families, um, families are, are supposed to be tight knit, but rifts occur, don't they? When, when one family member does something harmful or, or says something offensive, um, it can cause real damage. And yet there's something there about the Lord Jesus, who even though we are his brothers and sisters and we are continually sinning, we're continually going against what he wants. He's not ashamed of us. He's never ashamed of us. He, he doesn't think he's too cool for us. He doesn't distance himself from, from believers. He still considers us his brothers and sisters. He still loves us. He still wants to serve us. So it's not only that we are part of his family, which is a, a privilege and that's, yeah, that's enough, isn't it? To, <laughs> that, that, that would be amazing in and of itself, and it is. But it's a loving family relationship where Jesus looks at us in all our weaknesses and still loves us and isn't ashamed of us. And this is something I was thinking about just this last week, actually, because um, I had the uh, privilege of preaching from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and um, the second coming. And it talks about uh, Paul tells the Thessalonians about Jesus's appearing um, and that those who are on the earth, Christians on the earth, will be joined together with those Christians who have died in ages past. They will be resurrected. And so those who are still alive will join those who've been resurrected. And together, the church will meet Jesus in the air. And there's just something really striking and significant about the fact that that's a family reunion. That's, that's what's happening there. Like God is, is bringing together all the brothers and sisters of Christ. Um, so it's not just a kind of, it's not just about pomp and ceremony. Um, it's not just about us kind of being there to give Jesus a clap. Um, actually what's happening is the family is being brought together and and the mm. you know the promise at the end there is so we will always be with the lord so that 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 family um gathering will never be torn apart all the family all the brothers and sisters will be with jesus forever mm. and that second coming will 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 begin that will be the inauguration the inauguration of that so yeah those are a few thoughts on on things that have struck me about about those passages and that and that theme just personally that's glorious stuff mate i'm really enjoying that so much to think about there i love that thought of the ultimate family reunion when christ returns but it's great isn't it to be able to say he is our elder brother and it's it, just as you were speaking i was reminded of um something calvin picks up on uh, i think from ambrose in the story of jacob and esau you know, obviously those twins and Esau's yeah. the older brother. You know, Esau's supposed to receive the blessing of, of his dad. And um, Jacob's the younger brother, but he's been promised a blessing by the Lord. And so Jacob and Esau's mom actually helped Jacob to dress up in the clothes of the older brother. And as he does that, he goes and receives the blessing of his older brother. And uh, I think Calvin, but really quoting Ambrose, I think it is, sort of says, well, that's like us with Jesus. He's the elder brother who receives all the blessings of the father, yet we can be dressed in his outfit, like his righteousness, and go yeah. up to the father and receive all the blessings. So I, lo- I love that. Just You were talking about um, Jesus, our elder brother, and I was just thinking of my daughters. Uh, we've got an older older child and then a younger, a younger daughter, and the younger one is constantly looking to the older one and learning for good and for bad. <laughs> and we have to keep <laughs> reminding the older one. So actually the little one's watching you and listening to you. You're teaching her. Do you think there's something of that with us and Jesus? He's the older brother who teaches us how to, how to live. Oh yeah, of course, of course. And, and Christ is there as an example to us in, in the scriptures, isn't he? Um, mm. In so many ways, you know, we are to carry our cross like, mm. like Christ does. So it's interesting. So he he is the he is an example to us as believers, but he will he will teach us in quite countercultural, subversive ways. Um, 
so where other leaders um, might kind of teach the glory story, right? We go after our own power and prestige and success. Um, Jesus teaches us to be servants. He teaches us to um, carry our cross, to deny ourselves, to put ourselves out for others, um, to be willing to take on the shame of the world, you know, in order to in order to obey God and, and, and serve his purposes. Mm. Um, so, yeah, definitely that that older brother um, role is is in part a teaching role. Yeah, mm. which which is interesting to me because I'm an older brother, and so I think about me too. You know, <laughs> have, I, have I taught my younger sister? Well? I don't know. <laughs> You'll have to ask her. But, um, yeah, well, that's an interesting one, isn't it? Because we talk about fathers in the in the church family, and you know, part of that role is to to be like the heavenly father to our our children. But there's mm. a call maybe here for us who are elder brothers to uh, to reflect. Uh, the true elder brother to our our siblings if we have them yeah and I wonder if that's maybe more empowering it might be for those particularly who who aren't parents biologically it might be easier for them to conceive of themselves as brothers or sisters and older brothers or sisters than as a father figure or a mother figure to those in the church Mm. so you know maybe that's just another way of getting at that discipleship angle that will help empower certain people I really like that And, and I think speaking some of the truths into you know, if there are sort of elder brothers uh, in the congregations and really pressing into this this theme with them, just some of the stuff that you were saying earlier, you know, Jesus, as our elder brother, never ashamed of us. And you said, you know, never distances himself from us. He knows just how sinful we are. And yet he's always moving towards us to see us transformed and changed. And, and as well, just in the church community, just that sense of, um, I mean, a church like any any family as I said before, can have its rifts, can, can have its personality clashes. Um, you know, harsh words can be said, um, bitternesses can, can appear. Um, but that, that call to not be ashamed of our Christian brothers and sisters in the mm-hmm. fellowship, like Christ is not ashamed of us, can be a, a way into help working against some of those destructive influences, which is just another way, I think, of, you know, what Paul says in letters like Colossians about us bearing with each other, being patient. Um, mm. That's that's an outworking of that, I think, prior choosing not to be ashamed um, mm. of those who we might think are a little bit immature or have ticked us off in some way. But mm. um, yeah, I think there's there's lots of food for thought there. Mm, absolutely. And other, can you think of any other ways in which this kind of theology of church as you know, brothers and sisters of Jesus, Jesus as our elder, elder brother, kind of plays out practically? You know, I think, and, and the kind of the the topic of family, I think, speaks into this, but it really does go against an individualistic view of church, doesn't it? Mm. Um, often church is seen as maybe some meetings that I go to during the week whether it's a Sunday or maybe midweek for a home group or whatever and I'll go and I I really like the teaching or the music at this place or I I really like um having friends or community there on demand for me Mm. on my terms and if something is better happening at the weekend or at this time you know I'll prioritize that and and Mm. this sense of yeah a, a consumeristic kind of attitude to church can can creep in quite easily um and not a um it can be easy to, to take and, and, and not give and not serve and, and not get stuck in. But if we're family and if we're brothers and sisters, um, you know, I, I feel I don't feel as able to kind of just leave my biological sister in the lurch if she's struggling with something like mm. <laughs> mm. I'm, I'm bound to her. Um, I'm, I'm tied to her through family bonds um, like I am to my parents. And so there is a, an intrinsic responsibility that I have for her because I'm her brother and her older brother. Um, and so if, if all of the church family is coming to church and engaging with church community on the understanding that we have these family bonds and ties, which are a great joy, but also a, a, a genuine pr- um, responsibility, um, it just might help us kind of partake and engage in, in church community in a way that's helping us look out for each other and not mm. not just look out for what we can get out of it. Mm. Yeah, wonderful. I remember someone saying water is thicker than blood. 
And just in, in reference to uh, the, the ties and, uh, that we have in baptism mm. or even stronger than the ties that we have uh, in blood, uh, you know, mm. with our blood relatives. And of course, the, the great thing is when we're able to call our blood relatives or our, our uh, brothers and sisters in Christ as well. Yeah, um, that, and that's, you know, the best um, when we can do that. Um, but you're right, that definitely uh, impacts on, on the way that we, we, we think about um, our church family and how we use our own time and energy and even finances, rather than just thinking of those things kind of ind- individualistically and, and, and selfishly. I'm thinking, how, how, does, how do my decisions impact, you know, in those things impact the rest of the church family, my brothers uh, and my sisters? And how do I get them involved, actually, in the decisions that I make? as a mm. person as well mm. yeah decision making is key isn't it i think it's it's easy to um assume that those decisions won't really impact other people or that other people mm. other our brothers and sisters in the church shouldn't have any kind of say in them um but actually like it's a blessing to involve other people <laughs> in those decision making um processes and particularly yeah our brothers and sisters in the church i know that i've personally just been really blessed by um having others speak into those decisions mm. um, about you know where to live um jobs um you know future directions and plans all that kind of thing so it shouldn't just be seen as like a, a slap on the wrist you have to do this and it's just a drudgery actually mm. the lord has given us brothers and sisters with yeah. wisdom and different yeah. skills and insights and experiences to us mm. which gives them unique angles on our on our decision making and it's just just helpful to hear totally totally and the best thing that we can do for christian siblings is to point one another to our elder brother jesus and listen look a group of people who who've done that for 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 both of us yeah, are the Puritans, and uh, we've um, see, like that segue. <laughs> Very smooth, love it. <laughs> we on our walks. I mean, I mentioned our walks from the park earlier. We, we've discovered a shared love for the Puritans, and uh, we're going to talk about them now. I hope we can do a bit of myth busting, as well as really whet the appetite for those who've never read the Puritans before. Puritans include Thomas Goodwin, Jeremiah Burroughs. Richard Sibbs, John Owen, Thomas Watson, John Flavel, uh, to name to name but a few. Yeah, they're, they're these guys really who believed that the church needed to be constantly reformed by God's word. And uh, we have lots of their sermons and their books. And I've got some here, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices by Thomas Brooks, Learning in Christ School, Ralph Venning, The Bruised Reed, Richard Sibbs. The Sinfulness of Sin, Ralph Venning, The Love of Christ, Richard Sibbs, uh, and there's many more where that came from. But Jez, how did you start reading the Puritans? Yeah, I started reading the Puritans. I was trying to figure this out earlier. I think probably around 10 years ago. Um, and I started reading them because I felt I should. So I was <laughs> I was interested in, in reading Christian books and theology and doctrine and stuff. And um, the Puritans had kept popping up as recommendations as I was reading websites and listening to, you know, audio or podcasts or whatever there was 10 years ago (laughs) and I was listening to. And so I I felt this sense that, you know, (laughs) probably unhelpfully, if you're going to be going to be really into doctrine, if you want to (laughs) really kind of take it to the next level, you need to read the Puritans, not entirely helpful, I think, um, attitude. But nevertheless, I I, uh, thought that I'd dip in and I was able to get a number of secondhand um puritan works from banner of truth and a, a, actually via a friend who, who gave me some spare copies that he had so um you can get these short books that are published by banner of truth called puritan paperbacks so i got my hands on a few of those um, they're pretty cheap um and the idea is that they're making accessible these these quite old 17th century um christian literature to yeah modern day people and, and making it accessible so anyway, I, I started reading and I have to say, I was a little bit um, apprehensive about dipping in because I thought, OK, these guys are writing in the 1600s. Uh, how am I going to deal with the language? Is it going to feel relevant to me? You know, is it going to speak into my life? Something that was written so long ago. Um, 
but I thought I'd give it a go anyway. And the first book I read was a book by Jeremiah Burroughs called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Mm. So a book on book on contentment. Um, and... I've just got to say for a start, the names of some of these books are just brilliant, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They've got great names. They've got long names. And um, yeah, <laughs> sermons as well. I mean, you know, we we talk about three point sermons. They were like <laughs> 17 point sermons. <laughs> yeah. They didn't play around. Um, yeah. And, and you know, the, the titles of the Puritan paperbacks we have now are, are like shortenings sure. of all yeah. titles. There's been some good editing by uh, Banner <laughs> of Truth there. Anyway, I, I read yeah. The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment and um, I was so pleasantly surprised by it. So first, first of all, I was able, the language wasn't um, inaccessible. It's, it's probably a, maybe slightly trickier than, than some modern, um, modern Christian books, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't want people to be put off, I, you know, give it a go. Um, some Puritans are slightly harder to read than others, but actually if you're willing to um, put in a bit of time, um, reading out loud can sometimes help. Mm. Um, actually, it's, it's relatively accessible. Um, and and Jeremiah Burroughs was was accessible, and man, I I read this book and I felt like I felt like this guy had kind of spoken across hundreds of years straight to my soul. It was hmm. it was crazy. So he described what contentment was biblically, and he laid out what it is, what it isn't. There was he he used really fine distinctions. Um, distinguishing between what is genuine contentment and what is just mm. certain kinds of um, temperaments where you just might be a happy-go-lucky kind of person um, and, and showing how uh, one is actually true Christian contentment and how um, another isn't. He takes into account different people's personalities and the sorts of things that drive us at a motivational level. And I, I was reading this book and honestly, I just... Mm. I don't think I'd read anything like it. And I remember thinking at the time, gosh, I don't think I've read Christian books that have been able to peer inside my soul like this book has. And this was written ages ago. So I was just really impressed um, from the off with the, the relevance of it, the pastoral wisdom, um, the ability to speak into the heart of a person, regardless of, um, you know, what, what year it was i mean the human heart is just the human heart isn't it when it, uh, whatever time period you're living in and um that i i i remember reading about um contentment i, I was really struck by how countercultural it was as well i mean i just wanted sam i wanted to read off just a couple of points from this from this yeah, chapter because i'm sure you will find it funny as as those were those were listening so there's this there's this chapter called How Christ Teaches Contentment. And he breaks it down into these points that a, a, a godly content person learns and believes about themselves. Okay. <laughs> Point one is this. Such a person learns to know that he is nothing. Okay, <laughs> that's point one. We are nothing. <laughs> okay. Point two, we deserve nothing. And he goes on and explains it. Point three, we can do nothing. Mm. Picking up on the fact that without Christ, we're not, we're not able to do anything in this world. Mm. Um, point four, I am so vile that I cannot of myself receive any good. <laughs> and, it, and it goes on, it goes on. They don't mess about, <laughs> these guys. They do not mess about. <laughs> point six, not only are we nothing, we are worse than nothing because we are sinners. Mm. <laughs> I read this and it just completely took me aback. <laughs> this is not a guy who's concerned about self-esteem. Um, now, of course, you can you could overemphasize some of those points to the um, neglect of other doctrines. You know, we are made in God's image and we do have value as, as image bearers of, of God. Um, and I think Jeremiah Burroughs believed that and knew that. Um, so, you know, we want to caveat perhaps some of those points rather than just reading them in isolation. But nevertheless, there was just something refreshingly blunt about it and um, that took seriously the doctrine of sin 
it took seriously the fact that really we shouldn't feel entitled. Um, and it made me sort of just get a sense of how modern culture is really entitled. Um, we feel like we deserve so much um, when actually all that we have is a gift from God. Um, we don't deserve anything uh, because of our sinfulness. Um, and just that perspective shift was helpful to me um, and didn't, you know, make me feel rubbish about myself because at the same time, Jeremiah Burroughs speaks about the gospel and our, and the love that we have um, from Jesus. But it was just, it, it, it really did um, attack any sense of entitlement that I, <laughs> I was feeling at the time. And, and it's just really helpful. There were other parts of the book that were great as well. So I remember um, he talks about when you when you're in life and something has happened or you really hoped that something would would come to pass um, you were hoping for that job promotion or you're hoping for this gift or, or whatever and it didn't happen and and you feel upset about it he burrows makes this point it's like you don't know what will have happened to you if you'd have gained that thing he says you know that that thing that you wanted so much may have been the end of you spiritually if you'd have received it mm. and it may have actually been a mercy of God to withhold it from you, even though you wanted it so much, mm. just refreshing kind of perspective. And there's something about the Puritans in general, they had a way with words, but they had just really interesting angles on life that mm. still feel fresh, even reading them today. So that was the first Puritan book I read, the rare mm. jewel of Christian contentment would recommend. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, and my, my story with the Puritans is that uh, I, I'd never never read them. In my early 20s, went down to, to London uh, to do an apprenticeship. And the guy who was the vicar there at the church, it was that Mark Prentice has been on the, the podcast. Um, he would get us reading all sorts of so the church fathers, Calvin, and he got us reading the Puritans and I ended up like with this shelf full of the Puritan paperbacks. And you're right, like you can get them. I mean, I think I got some off, I guess it was eBay back then or Amazon, like a quid, you know, and, and I think nice. you can get them on, on Kindle as well. So you can get them cheap. I read, I think it was the Bruce Reed, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. A few things struck me. I mean, they were able to communicate truth beautifully. Mm. And they had a way, I think so many of them have a way with their uh, illustrations. Uh, yes. Just looking at a quote from John Owen, Communion with God, she said, God's love's like the sun, always the same in its light. Our love's like the moon. Sometimes it's full, sometimes it's only a thin crescent. Uh, they just had a great way of, of communicating truths. And just like you were saying, I think they, they seem to know themselves. They knew their sin. Mm -hmm. They knew people, which, as you've alluded to, made them wonderful pastors. Mm -hmm. um, and on that, Samuel Brotherford, I think we've got to get into Samuel Brotherford, because he had oh, these mate. letters, the letters of Samuel Brotherford, which I, if I think I'm right in saying that Spurgeon says, like, outside of, of the Bible, this is the number one book you've got to have sort of thing. Um, what, a, what a recommendation. <laughs> I know, I know. Spurgeon, who had like, you know, probably one of the most well-read people in history, Spurgeon. And he's like, you've got to get Samuel Brotherford's letters. Have yep. you got any, have you got any quotes from Brotherford? Oh, yeah, yeah. So I think um, this book has really impacted me, actually. So again, Letters of Samuel Brotherford, Puritan Paperbacks. Do, do you go out and read it? Um, and reading Samuel Rutherford, you kind of, you get a sense of how much this guy loves Jesus. Mm. Um, it's, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Now he's got a way with words. He's able to express in language um, the depth, the depth of his, of his heart for Christ, I think. Um, but it, it was striking to me. It was striking. I'll, I'll read one thing. He's writing to a, a noble woman basically mm. um, nearby and he's encouraging her to, um, ensure that she is in a relationship with Jesus mm. and in the middle of this letter he just kind of goes off on one like he, <laughs> he just goes off on one about how amazing Jesus is but then also how tragic it is that so many people don't know him so I'll just I'll just read a bit um, so what a what an excellent lovely one is Jesus 
put the beauty of 10,000 worlds of paradises, like the Garden of Eden in one, put all trees, all flowers, all smells, all colors, all tastes, all joys, all sweetness, all loveliness in one. Oh, what a fair and excellent thing that would be. Mm. And yet it would be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ than one drop of rain to the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths. Mm. Oh, but Christ is heaven's wonder and earth's wonder. What marvel that his bride saith, he is altogether lovely. Oh, if I could invite and persuade thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 of Adam's sons to flock about my Lord Jesus and to come and take their fill of love. Oh, pity forevermore that there should be such a one as Christ Jesus, so boundless, so bottomless, and so incomparable in infinite excellency and sweetness, and so few to take him. Alas, these 5,000 years, Adam's fools have been wasting and lavishing out their love and their affections upon lovers, upon bits of dead creatures and broken idols, upon this and that feckless creature, and have not brought their love and their heart to Jesus. Oh, pity that fairness hath so few lovers. Oh, woe, woe to the fools of this world who run by Christ to other lovers. Oh, misery that Christ can scarce get three or four hearts in a town or country. Oh, that there is so much spoken and so much written and so much thought of creature vanity and so little spoken, so little written and so little thought of my great and incomprehensible and never enough wondered at Lord Jesus. Why should I not curse this forlorn and wretched world that suffereth my Lord Jesus to lie alone? I mean, I could go on and that's a long quote, but this, it's just remarkable i mean there's the poetry there's the there's the imagery but there's the the passion the passion for jesus himself and a passion that expresses itself in in heartache that more and more people don't worship jesus mm. and there's something there about evangelistic motivation isn't there you know we we want to share the gospel with our friends and family because we want them to be saved and that is absolutely right and and good and we have a compassion for the lost and, but what I think Rutherford shows there is there's also a, there's a passion for Jesus's glory. Like it's not right that people don't worship him because yeah. of his loveliness, his greatness. And Sam, I've got to say, you know, I read, I read Rutherford and I would come to the end of a letter and I'd sort of think to myself, like, am I saved? Like, am, <laughs> am I actually a believer? Because I don't think I love Jesus as much as this guy does. <laughs> And, and I guess there could be something intimidating about that and, and reading someone like him. But there's also something inspiring and, and yeah. something aspirational about it as well when read in the, in the right heart with the right spirit. Um, so yeah. that's Rutherford. That, that's glorious. And, and I think that's right. I mean, look, these guys loved Jesus. They knew him. And I th it's, to, to me, I'm, I'm honest with the fact that they, they know him better than me. They, they've mined the treasures of the scriptures deeper than me. And I, that's why I do want to just sit at their feet and, and listen to them and listen to them speak of Jesus in beautiful ways, in ways that warm my heart. And I want to learn from them, like just a wider point about Rutherford. I think he teaches us so much about good uh, pastoral care. Mm. You know, we, we've just been reading Job as a, as a church family. And one of the questions we've been asking ourselves and one another is, is, is how do we pastor one another well mm. and you know we say well we don't want to pastor one another like those three miserable comforters you know who are just constantly getting Job to look at himself to you know deal with his sin himself it's, it's all getting him to turn inwards and sadly Job has to almost pastor himself at times and mm. uh when he's at his best, he's kind of looking up rather than looking in. He's looking up and he's remembering Jesus and who Jesus is for him. You know, just thinking about that famous bit in there in Job 16, where he, where he just says, even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. And what a, what a glorious thing, actually, to uh, speak of Jesus to one another, particularly when we're in those times of suffering and struggle. Mm. and uh, the, the Puritans do that so well I remember at theological college I think we had an exercise once where the tutor just said 
um, go out of the room in threes and just like preach for a minute. And I'm, you're not going to prepare. You've just got to preach for a minute straight up. And it was quite an interesting exercise just to see what, what came out. I was thinking like, actually, if someone said, can you speak about Jesus for a minute? Just straight, without any prep, just speak about Jesus for a minute. Mm. I wonder, would, would we struggle or would we not? Hopefully we wouldn't. But these guys, it's like, it's not a minute. I mean, they're writing like whole books on like <laughs> yeah. one verse on the glory of Christ. And, you know, it feels often like there's not repetition. You know, they've just got more and more and more to say about him. It's just always more and more and more to enjoy of Jesus. We'll never get to the bottom uh, of who he is. We'll never get to the bottom of the bar and say, oh, is that all there is? That's Rutherford's point, isn't it? Because that, that's yeah. what Rutherford says in that letter. It's like that we're, we're writing and thinking and considering mm. like all of these things he calls creature vanity, like just, mm. just stuff in the world and about ourselves. Yeah. And we, we put all our intellectual resources into like fleshing all that out when actually not enough, not nearly enough has been thought about and considered and written about Christ. And yet he's the one worthy of all our reflection and all our... <sighs> Yeah, totally. thinking and consideration. Yeah. And I think there's something there for us. You know, those of us that are preachers, it's like we, we always want to be preaching Christ, always want to be preaching. You know, these guys have, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of John Owen uh, in Communion with God. He has this section on, you know, fellowship with Christ, knowing Christ. And it's basically just exegeting Song of Songs. And it's like, this is about Jesus. This is about Jesus. Here's something else about Jesus. You know, and I, I had a quote uh, from Thomas Adams who said, Christ is the sum of the whole Bible, prophesied, uh, typified, prefigured, exhibited, demonstrated, to be found in every leaf, almost in every line. And they just like, they love to preach Christ from the scriptures. And because it was all about him, there was just so much to say about him. And I think this is the challenge for us as preachers is, you know, we've just con constantly got to be growing in our love for and affection of and understanding of Jesus so that we, we can preach him faithfully to our, our congregations. And that there's always more. We don't want to be, you know, just constantly saying the same things about Jesus, because that that almost gives the impression. Is that all there is to Jesus? It's like, no, no, there's so much more. And let's enjoy him. One other quote I've got from, from John Owen. I mean, we could, do, we could do this for hours, couldn't we? <laughs> we literally we're just like, could. Here's this quote. Here's this quote. But I think just what you're saying, like, they're just, these guys are just so confident in, in Jesus in comparison to what the world has to offer, which I think is useful for us evangelistically. It's like, what do we say? Well, just present Christ mm. and, like, have confidence that he's better than anything that anyone else uh, is looking to for life. And John Owen will just go like, only Christ can satisfy the soul. All of the ways and things will only end in disappointment. And then he just says, he puts out this challenge, really. In whatever condition you may be, either in greediness, chasing after some futile secular or religious aim, or wandering about in your foolish imaginations, succeeding only in driving yourself to despair, compare what you're aiming at or what you're doing with what you've already heard of Jesus Christ. If what you're seeking is like Christ or equal to him, then reject Christ as one who has nothing desirable in him. But if you find that all your life is full of foolishness and troubles compared to Christ, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Stop and consider what are all of your beloveds compared to Christ, the true beloved? What satisfaction and happiness of your beloveds brought you? Show us the peace, quietness and assurance of everlasting blessedness that they brought you. Their paths are crooked. Whoever walks in them shall not know peace. So look and see that there is a fit object for your highest love. One in whom you may find rest to your soul. One in whom you'll find nothing to grieve and trouble you for eternity. Behold, he stands at the door of your soul and knocks. Oh. I think that's great evangelistically, isn't it? <laughs> oh, mate. Is that communion with God, that one? That's, commun that's communion with God in the chapter Fellowship with Christ in Grace. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Any other so any other uh, quotes for us, lad? Well, just just slightly moving on as well. I mean, we I, I spoke a bit about um, Rutherford's kind of love for Christ, but just as you were saying, the Puritans were absolutely amazing about speaking about God's love for us and Christ's love for us. Um, in a way that I, you know, as an aspiring pre preacher, well, I am a preacher. Um, 
I just wish I could kind of emulate in some way that their ability to to hold out the Lord Jesus to people and speak of his heart and speak of the love of the father. Um, and I think we are, we are desperate for that. I mean, it's interesting, you know, over lockdown, gentle and lowly came out, you know, yeah. um, Dane Ortland. Um, and, and that just resonated with so many people. And in all, and in the book, Ortland says, you know, um, as evangelicals in the, U- uh, well, no, in the, not in the UK, like just, just general, um, evangelicals at the moment we're very good at, at saying um what christ has done we can articulate the atonement um, and what the cross and resurrection mean and what happened there um but we've maybe not focused as much on who christ is in terms of his heart for us like how does he actually feel about us mm-hmm. and it felt like in the in the difficulty of covid and lockdown when a lot of people and a lot of pastors were feeling burnt out that was a, a balm for <laughs> many people mm. to and and you know Auckland was just really drawing on puritan sources um yeah. and making kind of fresh comments and and applications um based yeah. on scripture to to speak about these same things and and people were just lapping it up and I, it just feels like there may have been yeah there may have been a lack there that he was he was kind of speaking into um mm. but yeah there's, there's there's loads of stuff i mean the bruised read is a classic often yeah. So the Bruce Reed by Richard Sibbs, um, it's often one of the first Puritan paperbacks that people will read if they read one. Um, it's brilliant. It refers to um, the idea of Jesus not not breaking a bruised reed. Mm. And the bruised reeds in, in the book refer to people who are Christians who are feeling downcast largely mm. about their sin, their failures. Um, and... Sibs is just brilliant. I mean, there's there's the classic quote from from this book. You know, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us, yeah. which you know by itself is just enough to lift lift you up, isn't it? Yes. But there's just loads in here that that's just so helpful. One one thing that particularly stood out to me, I remember when I was first reading it. Um, this is just from near the beginning of chapter two. Christ will not break the bruised reed. Um, Sibs writes this. A mother who has a sick and self-willed child will not therefore cast it away. And shall there be more mercy in the stream than in the spring? Shall we think that there is more mercy in ourselves than in God who plants the affection of mercy in us? And and the, the point Sibs is making there is that we know just from just from life that like parents will love their kids, even if they're ill. Um, even if they're um, disobedient and, and naughty. Um, and we, we think of humans, people we know, um, who, are, who are merciful and they show mercy and they're kind. And yet God is the source of all kindness and mercy. <laughs> you know, he is, the, he is the spring and we are just the streams. And so we can't think of, and, but, and yet sometimes we're tempted to think that God is more austere than like human beings, like that the people we know are more merciful than God, when actually God is the source of all mercy. And just something like that, a, a nice little perspective shift I found just really, really helpful and encouraging. Um, so good. And I, I think that's really helpful for us to hear these days where we can easily focus too much on our love for Christ And I say too much in in that I think as the Puritans get right, we want to focus on Christ's love for us. And that almost that that love of God for us in Christ is, I think, the fuel for our love for him Mm. and the fuel for our holiness. That to me comes across so strongly in the Puritans. They're passionate about holiness. You know, they have books, you know, the mortification of sin, the mm. sinfulness of sin. They, they, they want us to, they want to help us to put sin to death, to become more like Christ. But the way that they so often do that is by painting this biblical picture of Christ and all this beauty and his glory that warms our hearts and affections to him. I find that really helpful uh, just personally, but also helpful, again, for, for me as a preacher, thinking, what, what am I trying to do when I'm preaching the scriptures? First and foremost, and I think it was Jonathan Edwards who said this, I want to promote love for Christ and joy in him by showing Christ's love for us. 
Yeah. And John Owen picks upon that actually in communion with God. He talks about the um the different the similarities and the differences between God's love for us and our love for God. And and he makes it, he makes the point that like one of the differences is that God's love is the initiating love. <laughs> like he he's the one who loves us, as as you know, the apostle John puts it. Here is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us. And 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 he's he's big on that. Like it, it is God's love which which comes first um, and which is the, the initiation of and, and the motivation for us loving him. And like you say, you know, these guys were not about, Oh, feel loved, but don't change your life. Don't, mm-hmm. you know, they were, they were yeah. all about living a holy life. That is like yeah. Jesus. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they're, they're thought of as being quite austere and strict and caricatured, I think as joyless moralists. <laughs> um, and I think if anyone, learns anything from today hopefully from the quotes we've read they they realize that that's not what they were like at all and actually they were just brimming with with joy and love and wanting to communicate the, the love of god themselves absolutely there's that meme isn't there it's like puritanism is the haunting fear that someone somewhere might be happy <laughs> <laughs> i don't know if that's like american puritanism or what but that is uh yeah the, these guys just their love for christ just shines out of these books and I think just one of the other things that they've challenged me on is just how much there is to glean from scripture. I mean, these guys were writing whole books about like single verses or a couple of like, yeah. I'm just looking at the great yeah. gain of godliness by Thomas Watson. And he, you know, it's Malachi three sixteen to 17. And he writes a whole book on, on those verses, you know, and, uh, and, you know, I could look at uh, sinfulness of sin, Ralph Venning. And again, he starts Romans seven, 13 and just exegetes that and unpacks it and i think you know partly there's so much to get out of verses but also that though i think they were masterful at applying verses because again they knew people they knew their own hearts uh, they knew the scriptures they knew christ and they knew how to apply the scriptures into people's lives i think they're masterful at that challenge for us preachers eh there's That's always right. more. There's always more. Oh, mate, have we got any other final quotes before we uh, before we finish this off? Yeah, sure. I, I wanted to read one from Thomas Goodwin, The Heart of Christ, which was oh. this this was um, the primary influence on Gentle and Lowly for, for those who've read Gentle and Lowly. Um, this is, yeah, so Puritan Thomas Goodwin. Um, he was writing at a time where he was concerned that Christians felt like Jesus would have loved, Jesus would have been more loving to them whilst, whilst he was on earth, but now he's in heaven. He's kind of got better stuff to do and isn't as compassionate. Now he's in heaven um, towards us down on earth. And he basically writes this uh, book to completely destroy that idea (laughs) and to make it absolutely clear that Jesus is just brimming with compassion and love and affection um, for Christians even the ones who are down here, we're in the nitty gritty of life. We're struggling with the day to day. We've got all sorts of burdens and things coming at us. Um, but nevertheless, in the midst of all that, you know, Jesus's heart is, is full towards us. And I mean, there's just so much here that will, I think, capture the imagination and warm the heart. But there was just one little quote I found. And he's reflecting on um, Jesus speaking in John's gospel where he says, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that so where I am, you may be also. And Goodwin says this, check this out. It is as if Jesus had said, the truth is, I cannot live without you. I shall never be quiet till I have you where I am, that so we may never part again. That is the reason of it. Heaven shall not hold me, nor my father's company, if I have not you with me. My heart is so set upon you. And if I have any glory, you shall have part of it. I mean, it's just absolutely remarkable, remarkable words. Now, Goodwin doesn't think that um, Christ is needy and like he doesn't need us. Um, He knows that, you know, Jesus is completely sufficient in and of himself. Um, But what he captures there in in that, those words are, just the genuine affection and desire that Jesus has for his people. 
and I, I just love, I love it. I just love it. There's just something so fresh about it as well. Um, one of the things we were saying, Sam, you know, before we hit the record button was, you know, how how often will you hear something something like that in a sermon today? <laughs> Maybe we're too afraid to to speak of of Christ's love for us in in these sorts of terms. Um, but there's just something, yeah, um, heart melting about it, really. Mate, we could go on and on, and uh, <laughs> maybe there's another episode in the future. But uh, I've really enjoyed this, and I guess both of our hope off the back of this conversation is that people would read the Puritans to have our hearts warmed to Jesus and our, our vision of him enlarged. Well, look, perhaps if you're interested, I mean, Dane Ortland, Gentle and Lowly is a great book, a great little introduction to the Puritans. But Jez, if you, maybe if you could say one recommendation. That... I would probably, I would encourage people probably to start with the Bruise Read, actually. Right. Yeah. The Bruise Read. And, and to be honest, Sam, you know, I've, in my pastoral ministry, I've dealt with people particularly who have felt run down and spiritually low and, and particularly aware of their failings doubting their assurance in particular um, and just feeling discouraged and deflated because of their own sins and feeling like God is against them essentially. Um, Or like, why would God love me? (laughs) Why would God care about me? And I, I have pointed people to the bruised read um, because it's just so helpful um, and so encouraging and you'll find it really refreshing. So I think that's always a good starter um, a good, mm. yeah, gateway drug to the Puritans. So the Bruised <laughs> Read by uh, Richard Sibbs, a oh. good way in. And, and once you start, you won't you won't stop. It's it's they're that good. And I can't wait to meet these guys in the new creation. Oh, um, it'd be amazing just to, to chat about them and continue learning from them, and then t- together to behold Jesus face to face. It's just going to be amazing. Jess, thank you so much. It's been really enjoyable. Oh, thanks for having me on, Sam. It's uh, it's great to nerd out about the Puritans. Really. <laughs> yeah. And thanks, thanks to those who've listened to this episode. And do check out some of the other series on the Didicate podcast. There's the Sunday with Jesus series, the Day with Jesus. And uh, do check out the previous conversations I've had with, uh, with other folk as well. And of course, do tune in soon for more on the Didicate podcast. Thanks so much.